Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's up? It's Johnny LSQ. Welcome to episode 33 of the LSQ podcast. I'm excited to share with you a conversation with an artist I've admired for many years now and was thrilled to finally get a chance to interview, Laura Jane Grace of Against Me, and more recently a solo project called Laura Jane Grace and the Devouring Mothers. In fact, last year with that project, she released an excellent album, Bought to Rot, an urgently delivered and refreshingly varied array of songs that show off some previously unseen and unheard sides of her musical personality. Laura Jane Grace and the Devouring Mothers do have some shows coming up in September, including the Ohana Festival at the end of the month. Plus, Against Me are also touring this fall and even playing at Riot Fest in Laura's current hometown of Chicago this coming weekend. What do you remember most vividly at this point about the very first time you ever went on tour? Oh, um... How old would you have been? I was 18 years old at the time. I, You know, for some reason I was actually thinking about that. I've, I've actually been thinking about, like, our first tour we did a lot just because it's my 20-year 20 anniversary, 20 anniversary of touring, actually. I'm 38. Happy, happy anniversary. My first tour was when I was 18. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, and also, You should like, get a diploma for sure. <laughs> you should get sure. something. Maybe a, yeah, yeah, a plaque or whatever. <laughs> um, and then also, like, we're in a van on this tour, and we've... You know, for for a while we've been doing bus touring, but this is like the this first tour with uh, with this incarnation <laughs> and doing this project. So we're in a van on this. So van touring is a lot different than bus touring. Um, and I was thinking about our first tour recently, and I was specifically thinking about towards the end of the tour and remembering like one of the very last drives. Um, being like at a gas station and just us being broke and being like we need to get gas we need to fill up this tank or we're not going to get any further how do we fill up this tank and us turning to um our one friend who was on tour with us at the time who had a debit card and being like uh, you're gonna have to buy this gas, you know. We'll get we'll get you back in either karmic yeah, or, or we won't action. get you back, but you know, like you're gonna have to do it nonetheless. So, um, but yeah, it's amazing. Like the the real reason I was thinking about it too, or like, or one of the other things I was thinking about, and compared to touring, um, since the last time I remembered in a van, um, you know, you miss like looking out the window when you're in a bus. You you, you, sleep, you sleep while you're yeah. driving. You just show up in the cities. 
And I feel bad where, like, I'm driving around America for the past couple weeks and, you know, like, everything's covered in trash. Everywhere you go, it's just fields of fucking trash. And it's so sad and depressing. Like, everywhere. We were in Gallup, New Mexico the other day. I went and took a jog. And it was just, like, beautiful landscape covered in beer cans, bottle caps, plastic bags, fucking yogurt containers. Like, just trash everywhere. And I'm, like, trying to remember if, like, was it like that when I was touring it, like, 20 years ago, you know? Or is this, like, how rapidly are we drowning in garbage right now? I mean, this tour specifically, though, is supporting the solo album that you put out near the end of last year. Yes. And so that's sort of what has kind of rebooted the operation, right, so that you're now, that you're back into doing a van thing for the time being. And does it feel like the first times you did it with, you know, with bands that you've been in? Do, do you Are you having kind of nostalgia uh via yes and no i'm having like the little bit of this nostalgia sure but i mean we're touring in a mercedes sprinter van you know like it's a rental don't get me wrong we don't own it but it's a mercedes nonetheless (laughs) and like you know our first tour was in it was like a 86 gm van that had like holes in the floor from the rust right we would sleep at rest areas like on the roof of the van or just on the sidewalk there and you know the the inconvenience of tonight's show changing venues back in the day that would have been well two weeks of shows got canceled so let's go camp out in the woods somewhere right. and we like save money we need to buy money. a new alternator for the van so yeah so gonna... let's get start spare changing on the side of the road you know <laughs> do you I mean I would imagine you your feelings about touring have fluctuated over the years but do you like it do you do you enjoy being on the road or is it or is, does it feel like more of a necessary not evil but whatever I do really enjoy it you know um and I enjoy all forms of it you know like I love bus touring I love being in airports I love um I love van touring like I really you know on a tour like this apart from the show itself what I look forward to most in the morning is waking up getting in the van we make a coffee stop I get a quad shot of espresso oh yeah same I read, high fives for a quad <laughs> <laughs> I read the morning newspaper while drinking my espresso and then I write for like a good hour while looking out the window and we drive and then I read for the rest of the time and then yeah. we show up and unload and you do the hustle and everything like that um which is more the actual work part of it you know and then there's the show and you do it all again the only real sacrifice with the van touring you you just get a lot less sleep so you're a little more tired and on edge and maybe a couple less meals but like at the same time it's the variety that makes it interesting too where it's like if we were only doing bus touring that's get that gets really boring if you're only doing van touring that gets really boring so keeping it mixed up is always really important you know yeah and also yeah i'm sure it's one of those where you're just like who can complain about this shit right like you have to have a good healthy perspective of what you're doing for sure you know and feel thankful for that and i like i i love getting to see the country and it's something that you know there's been times where i forget how special that is and how you know like especially in a time where the u.s seems so divided and everything and you, you realize so oftentimes that people who have such strong opinions aren't people who've traveled and seen the whole country and realize how it is in other places. And to have that kind of knowledge, I feel like, is just so valuable. And, like, um, you know, it, there's nothing else can compare to that. What are the earliest memories you have of just sort of feeling, like, musical or drawn to music? Um, really young, you know. Uh, I remember specifically... Uh, I lived in Texas from when I was like uh, 
three years old until I was seven years old, and my father was military. And then after I finished the first grade in Texas, he got stationed overseas to Italy. So I remember, you know, we went, my, my mom, my dad, and me and my brother went and did the rounds, visited the grandparents with our parents before we moved overseas. And before we took the long flight over to Italy, I got a Walkman and I got to pick out a cassette tape with my Walkman. So I got my Walkman and I got Def Leppard Hysteria on cassette. And that was what I listened to the whole flight on repeat and, you know, infinitely until I got my next cassette. But I was just hooked on music at a really young age. And moving to Italy, you know, there was one TV channel that was English, Armed Forces Network, and they did not show music videos in any way. So at that period of time, I was really just like, you know, discovering music on my own without MTV in any way. But I would go to the military PX and sit there and read Hit Parader magazine, read like all the metal magazines, and just like look at these bands and look at their style and then I would go to the music section of the PX and just pick out records based on the cover art of whether it got yeah. looked cool. Well, in cool. Hysteria, that has such great cover art that you set a high high bar for cover art if right, that's like right. the first one you've like <laughs> stared at for hours. Well, all of Def Leppard's like right, early records have really cool cover art, like High and Dry, you know, Pyromania, like all those those album art it was. Although Hysteria is the better of all those albums, I learned quickly. But I was the metal bands at first, you know, like I listened to. Warrants, and I listened to Guns N' Roses and Skid Row, Def Leppard, and then I also like I liked MC Hammer, and I liked New Kids on the Block and Paula Abdul and um, Debbie Gibson, you know, like, and then I also liked U2, and and it was like a real just random assortment of stuff, and and there were a couple things that like my parents passed down to me that they listened to, um, but most of it was discovering it on my own, and then around when I was eight I started saving money mowing lawns and saved up money until I had like a hundred bucks to order an acoustic guitar out of a Sears catalog and it took like a month to get there after ordering and I started taking lessons from an army wife and um, just went from there right and so when you were I mean where would you even just go to buy to buy music when you could when you were into something enough to get that at the military PX which is like uh, it's a PX is like a department store you know it's like a walmart or a target where you walk in and there's the different departments or whatever so they had a music sec- selection i remember it was like right next to the video game selection and um yeah again yeah, was it a limited a lim- you know fairly limited array of of things or sort of like chart toppers or it was chart toppers yeah yeah, yeah. it but it you know, honestly, it's hard for me to remember how it was limited yeah. because I had no perspective and I didn't know what even to look for. So, you know, I, w- I would guess that the military itself censored its, to some extent oh, yeah. what was there. That makes sense. But at the same time, like, <laughs> I got Guns N' Roses, you know, and I remember, like, right. looking at the tape inlay for Appetite for Destruction where there's some really graphic, like, art in there and being, like, scared my parents would see it, you know. Yeah. So, And that was definitely a tape that had parental advisory stickers on it. But nonetheless, I was allowed to get it, you know. Was it weird as a kid to just be in Italy all of a sudden, you know, like after having been, because that's old enough to remember, to, you know, you had processed some memories of the States before that. Sure, sure. Like I have a little bit of memories of kindergarten and first grade, but yeah, I really came to consciousness around like second, third grade and, and, you know, came to conscious there and like it was a completely different culture and so it was you know real culture shock moving back because I moved back when I was like going into the sixth grade and you know there was the shock of like 
parents divorcing and then also like all of a sudden being in a strange place not having any friends and then also like just stylistically you know like my mom would buy me clothes from Benetton, you know, and like the kids at the school in South Florida were wearing like body glove and like Air Jordans. And I didn't know what Air Jordans were. And, and MTV was there all of a sudden, you know. What, what was your first introduction to like counterculture music or like underground music? I remember in Italy very vividly seeing the band named Sex Pistols spray painted on a wall and not understanding what it... I knew it was a band of some sorts, but not... And no, I knew there was something different about them. There had to be something different about them, but I didn't know what they looked like or know that their album was even called Nevermind the Bollocks or anything like that. Um, so I remember that. And then it was really like moving back to the U.S. and, and MTV and like... So was, did Nirvana make a big impact on you? It was Nirvana, yeah, yeah, really. I was talking about this the other day and how, like, I moved it back right when Smells Like Teen Spirit was coming out. And, like, MTV played that, played the Red Hot Chili Peppers under the bridge and give it away, like, ad infinitum. And then, uh, and Michael Jackson's Black or White. Like, those yeah. videos were just ubiquitous at the time. That was, like, everywhere. Yeah. And then, you know, so you so you ordered your guitar from from the Sears catalog and were you immediately trying to write your own songs or were you more sort of learning to play the songs that you were into? Initially? Well, that's where I got it wrong at first was that I was I you know, my parents paid for me to take lessons and I didn't enjoy lessons. You know, like I remember the first song I think my guitar teacher tried teaching me was Ode to Joy, you know? Mm. I had no interest in playing Beethoven on a guitar, yeah. you know, like and when I then when I was in Florida, I started taking classical guitar, classical guitar lessons. And I wish now that I would have taken more stock in that and the technique of it and learning to sight read music. But I just found the music boring and there was nothing like I couldn't visualize the music in my head. So I couldn't reproduce it on my own where it wasn't really until I started just playing along to records that all of a sudden it would, that was like the spark where I was like, oh, okay, now I get it, you know, and then could play it on my own. And, and it was much more fun just playing by ear along to records. And yeah, and I'm guessing that I, as someone who was attracted to punk rock, like passionately, the idea that, well, it's not technical anyway, you know, it's not, I don't need to be technical if this is the kind of music I want to play, so fuck it, you know, in the short term, sure. might be how you'd look at it, and then later you'd be like, technical stuff's cool, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I also think that sometimes, like, the punk artists that most people write off as not being technical performers are also those same performers who who the most technically proficient performer cannot reproduce the performances of. Like Crass, one of my all-time favorite punk bands, no other drummer can play drums like Penny Rambo. Or Penny Rambo. Um, same with like even like fucking Meg White from the White Stripes. Like People like to slag on Meg White as being a simplistic drummer. No one can play like Meg White. No one can make a simple beat sound that good. And that takes like real talent, in my opinion. Yeah, and also just, you know, a reminder of the individual, you know, just like the individual spirit of the player is like, you know, unreplicatable by any other player. It's like totally. the human versus robot factor. Again, <laughs> with the human versus robot shit. There's still hope for the human race. <laughs> I'm ready to embrace the robot culture, you know what I mean? Like, I am certain that when I have the option of like, a really uh, lifelike robot dog or cat or something like that. <laughs> I'm going to be so into it. I'm going to like fall genuinely in love with a robot 
pet of the future. Well, that'd be cool because you could probably at least bring a robot dog like overseas with you because I would love to be able to have a dog but I'd need to have an animal that could travel with me and doing quarantines and stuff like that with international touring makes it impossible so if I had a robot dog yeah. it wouldn't need to deal with quarantines or anything like that yeah, you just power it down just collapse it <laughs> eventually you would forget that it was a robot dog and you'd be like I think it loves me <laughs> and it's more hygienic as well <laughs> Right. No cleaning up after it. I can definitely get behind this. <laughs> so what were the earliest songs you wrote like? What did they did? And, and, and do they resemble in, in any important ways the songs you still write now or that you tend to write most naturally? The, I had a band when I was 12 years old, my very first band. We had two names. We were called the Black Shadows and then we were also called the Leather Dice. We kind of switched between those two names. And there was a band shell in Naples, Florida, in uh, downtown Cambier Park, that the electricity was left on for. So we would just take our little tiny practice amps over there and drum set and just set up on the band shell in the middle of this park and have practices. And I remember, like, once we got proficient with a couple covers, we were like, we need our own stuff. So there was, like, a little kid, a little girl there playing, and we were like, hey, what should we write a song about? And the little girl was like, write it about Ariel, the Little Mermaid. So the very first song I ever wrote was about Ariel, the Little Mermaid. Solid suggestion <laughs> for a song concept. <laughs> yeah, and I still remember it. I still remember at least the first verse and the chorus and the chords. And I mean, it was really like, it was like Beatles-esque writing. Like early Beatles, you know, like just like simple three chord songs, like simple melodies. And yeah. yeah but I mean... Would you say, yeah, that there's some there's a core of something um, in what you're striving to do when you're when you're writing a song that like reminds you still of what you were the feel you were going for then? I mean, like, in, in, thankfully, no. no, yeah, because you know I, I had it really wrong when I was young, where I really thought it was like you have to wait for this divine moment of inspiration to spark you. And this song will just arrive in your lap as opposed to now as an adult knowing like songwriting is work. You have to work at it. It's like you, you may have a block of wood, but you got to chisel away at it and shape it into what you want, you know, um, and like that there's a real method to it. And especially being where it's like becomes this is what I do for a living, you know, like I can't there are moments where you know, something does arrive and I'm like, oh shit, there's a song, it's done. I just have to write it down, remember it. But you can't sit around waiting for those moments when this is what you do. You have to write songs and it's a craft, you know? And I appreciate that a lot more. But back in the day, I just had no idea where to start, you know? Right. And eventually that became, okay, start at the lyrics. And then it became like, all right, if I fill up this size notebook paper with this much words, I can chisel out a song from this many words. I know there'll be a song in there somehow. But even then, like, I look at, like, if you look at the first Against Me record and some of the songs on there structure-wise, it was all just random. It wasn't knowing that, like, okay, you start a song with an intro, then you do a verse, then you do a chorus, then you do a verse, then a bridge, and then a chorus. You know, like, it was just like... Or you don't. It's we're going to start with the bridge, we're going to do two choruses, and then we're going to end. You know, like, there's just, like, no rhyme or reason about the structure. Um, it was all just, like, throwing darts in the dark, you know? Right, but I mean... It's not. I, it's. It sounds like you're saying that you think that the the more formal version ultimately is like objectively kind of the 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 better or the more sophisticated thing to do. But it's also interesting to me having on my drive down here, you know, listening 
to your new solo album and the variety of different things on it and how like kind of open it is and how, mm-hmm. and like uh obviously the songs are f- like there's a lot of bangers on there and there's like very <laughs> strong songs each one to the next but it doesn't seem constrained by uh like formula or something it seems right well and there's an element of like you know you d- once you discover there's formula you utilize the formula, but then you utilize it so much you start to rebel against it again, you know, and you're like, I don't want to just do these same structures that you do over and over again. It's nice to know they exist, but then you don't want to be bound to that all the time. Um, So, you know, there, there is like, you want to be unconventional and you want to try new things and everything like that. And there's definitely an element of that with the new record. But, um, you know, with the, with, with Bot Tarot, like, there are songs on there that came as like divine moments like that, where it was like all of a sudden I just had a song and I knew what to do with it and wasn't thinking. But then there are very much like, you know, my whole philosophy with this last record was if there's anything lyrically or musically that I don't feel 100% sure about, I'm going to go back and I'm going to rehash it to death and I'm going to work it out until I feel good about it. And like my real method with that is like, I know if I play a song for somebody that's like a new song, if when they're listening to it, there's a moment I feel uncomfortable, it's because I'm unsure about something in there, whether that's mm. a lyric or a chord change or a tuning or something like that. And if in the presence of another person, I can't let something slide, I know I need to keep working on it. So I was really sure about this record in that way. Um, but, you know, this record also, like, it was recorded in a week. You know, those are all live takes. It's not like Pro Tool to death or anything. And that was a real, like... Make, made a point of doing it that way just because I didn't want to spend a month in a studio like worrying about like is that snare late was that kick rushed or like you know am right. I a little wide in the tuning right there I wanted it to have like kind of that capturing lightning in a bottle thing for lack of a better metaphor um, but you know when you were writing those songs and and I mean sort of just generally look zooming out on the difference between a song that might feel like it's something for your next album on your own versus an against me thing like assuming that that's a, that that's something that's going to happen that there might be yeah. against mm-hmm. me music like do you think it's just something with these songs that immediately it's like, no, this is not going to be an against me song. This is going to be for my thing or for something else or, but it's, is, does it feel obvious to you? Like in the early phases of, of the song kind of percolating. It's tough, you know, like there was a lot of reasons for that with this record. Um, obviously we had a lineup change with Andrew coming back into the band and Inge leaving the band. Um, that made me want a fresh start with Against Me, where it was like, okay, I've been working on these songs that I have right now for like a year and a half, two years. I don't want to just plug Andrew into this and then we're going to go and record it. But before that, too, with Inge, it was like, okay, these songs aren't working with us as a four-piece. Like, And I don't want to force them and make it and have to force it and be like, James, you have to write backing vocals for these songs because Against Me has two vocalists on songs, so come up with chorus melodies. If you don't got chorus melodies, then you know, like, then don't do it. Right. Let's have the songs be something else. You don't have to write another guitar part for this. You can just be one guitar part songs. So that became the thing for me of just like I don't want to force you all to like participate in these songs. I've yeah. wrote these songs. I just want to play them. You know, like, and it doesn't have to be this thing. But also like lyrically, topically, I just felt like a real weight concerning against me because like there will be another against me record we're working on it now we have like shows lined up at the end of the year that hopefully after that we'll go in and we'll record be ready to 
but I am conscious of it. It's like, okay, it's going to be the eighth against me record. And like, I hope we have a ninth and a 10th album in us, but like, frankly, if we don't, and this is the last against me record, I don't want it to be subject matter wise about what bought to rot is about. I would just rather bought to rot stood as its own thing and didn't have the weight of being the last against me record. And that was what the last against me record was about. I just wanted it to be its own thing and have no pressure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I don't know, maybe versus when, you know, I'm a little older than you, but like when we were, were sort of like getting into music and that kind of Nirvana was one of my first like detours into like weird you know or like underground music or whatever as well um it seems like a more new reality that like oh as a band it's fine if you you don't have to be gone or back or broken up or reunited or, right. or two years album whatever like you could you know it's like say what you will about the uh overstaying their welcome of a little band called the Rolling Stones, you know, like, (laughs) at least it's instructive that you're like, well, kind of if your band has fans that are stoked for you to put out music, like, at any point, you're like, well, we don't have to decide anything about anything. If, like, fucking 10 years from now, we're like, hey, let's put out some songs, you can fucking put out some songs. And, like, if not, not, and it's just, well, sorry, we left you in suspense. And I'm cognizant of that, and I totally agree with you. And I, that is my mentality of like, well, there's no reason we should just have to shut this down because I want to do something else for something. Like, keep it open. Let's not, like, you know, close off any a- avenues or anything like that. But that being said, like, it is hard to keep a machine going or to get it going again, especially because there are other factors that make something work besides just the people in a band. Right. Whereas, like... You know, we have a really good crew of people who tour with us, like a great tour manager, great front of house person, you know, great guitar tech. And if we don't keep working, then they're going to go and get other gigs. And then we're going to want to go and do something. And we're going to be like, well, we don't have that crew, you know, like, so if we want to keep the crew and the team together, we need to keep putting out music and we need to keep dates coming in. So everybody is working. And that's like your responsibility as a business owner, almost in that way, you know, like of being cognizant of like everyone wants to eat. You know, like, and we're not rich. We're a working class band. So you do need to, like, keep working in that way, you know? Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about the doing the work of songwriting, like, or even the idea of being on tour and every morning, you know, as you're having the coffee doing writing, um, when did you start to kind of institute that sort of a practice? Like, you know, or is is that a more recent thing as an artist that you realize, like, I got to be kind of disciplined about that shit? Um... I started really focusing on that around 2003, 2004. Um, I always kept a journal, but like around then, it was really like 2004 was when I, I got sober um, mm. for the first time. And I was like, you know, focused really on writing. Like I'm gonna do a journal entry every night before bed and in the morning or whatever. Um, and, and really started focusing in that way and got really into like hearing about how other writers worked, you know? and I always been fascinated about the idea of like okay you know like someone like nick cave wakes up in the morning and goes to an office and sits and writes is that what he does yeah mm -hmm. and like i've anytime there's like whatever clickbait article that's like learn about these writers habits and what drugs they were taking i'm like click you know like (laughs) i want to know what did sartre do all day long oh he took speed and sat at cafes and wrote sounds awesome you know um (laughs) but so like i started like really paying attention to that and like 
would try to emulate it. And then eventually, like, it just became my reality where, like, you know, now my life as an adult is when I'm not on tour because I live somewhere. I've lived in Chicago for the last six years. I don't have a social life. I don't have friends or anything like that. And I'm a full-time parent when I get home. So, you know, I wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, fix my daughter, like, breakfast, take her to school, drop her off at school, and I have a studio space right around the corner from her school that I go to and I sit at alone for six hours and work on songwriting. And then I go and I pick her up from school. And then I go home and we, you know, make (laughs) dinner and we hang out and we do it all over again. And I do that five days a week, you know. Um, And... sometimes you feel inspired and sometimes you don't but like forcing yourself to like even if I don't feel inspired today I have to sit here and I'm going to do some work you know right oh man I have so many questions um but Ben Gibbard does that as well he has a a office in Seattle and he's like briefcase you know not really but like goes there every day and it's interesting because I always ask people about this because I'm you know fascinated by it as well even just the episode that just came out with twin the guy from twin shadow he was very, very sort of like, no, I can't, I don't, I don't want to um, sort of ruin the mystique of it, I guess, like of um, trying to make it into a job like that, you know, which I was like, oh yeah, no, I get, I get, you know, it's, it's the different perspectives on it I think are interesting because it's so ephemeral <laughs> to me as non, as a non-songwriter that I'm like, okay, whatever, it seems like whatever it takes, like if, once you can tap into that, the excitement about trying to do it again, like, would sort of maybe put you in a, like, well, whatever works for me zone, you got to sure. just sort of be open to it. When I hear someone, like, say that, though, like, I always think, like, well, lucky fucking you that you don't want to turn it into a job. That's <laughs> fucking great, you asshole. Because <laughs> some of us really have to work at this, and, and there's a lot of responsibility in it, but... <laughs> But, when did when did you I mean how long had you been writing songs when you started to feel good about or was it immediately that you felt good about them um or felt like okay I think I know how what what it feels like when it's happening Well there's different levels to that you know like the feel good about it you know like there's the level of like I feel good about this song because it works really good live and sometimes that song isn't a song you felt really good about when you wrote initially or when you were recording but it works live and you're just stoked that it works live um and then you know there's all different variations of that you know there's some songs where you're like oh we recorded the song I'm so happy with the way it came out but it sucks live there's no reaction the room dies you know so um but I think, you know, really, like, within the last eight or nine years was actually when I started to be really, like, comfortable and feeling okay with work I'm doing, you know, or, like, feeling confident in it. Um, A lot of that, you know, coincided with going through the major label process, and that really, like, that, I think, was, a you know, in addition to, like, okay, sobering up and, like, focusing on writing in that way, but then signing a major label deal, it was like, all right, we need to get serious. This is your chance, you know, like, fucking, it's now or never, bare your soul. You have to dig deeper than you've ever dug before, like, all those fucking, like, cliches, (laughs) you know, like, but you believe them. You're in this situation where there is a lot of pressure, and you're like, okay, now or never, you know, like, pony up, got to do this. Right, right. But also, I mean, I'm sure in retrospect, the sense of that pressure of that moment, like, now must seem like, wow, it wasn't really. They make it seem so do or die in that situation when you're just, like, freshly on a major label and you're like, 
you've done some shit and your band's popular and you kind of didn't have to sign, but you're like, you know what? I deserve this opportunity to make like a really like maybe I could put a down payment on a house. I'm not gonna. N- not do this especially if you're just like the smiths were on this label why the fuck not right right and then you know cut to now and it's like i'm sure there's things that things that felt like that they were the end of the world in decisions you had to make for those records that you're like did that would that really have affected anything i think about that a lot though especially as someone who like had a lot of poor choices made during those period of times or things that like were legitimate setbacks like getting arrested and stuff like that right like you know um whatever like dumb shit we did but that's not major label related, <laughs> for sure no but it, it like um like we were on a major label right. i got arrested as our major label was coming out you know or oh, the debut the, was coming oh out so it was definitely like a dark cloud over touring yeah. and like you know i i've written about it where like we did a month-long tour with mastodon right before our record came out and that month-long tour was a cocaine fest the whole time so it's like well maybe if we wouldn't have spent a month on tour with mastodon being blasted out of our minds we would have been in a better spot as a band when the record actually came out you know (laughs) but um when it came to like the actual songwriting and the actual record making record making i felt such a pressure too of like I don't want to let down Butch, who we made the records with. Like, I want to rise the, to the occasion because I feel like this person sees something in me. So I want to try to encompass what they see in me and and like and meet that, you know. And but do you feel like it, the result was that it did elevate your your songwriting and the and the focus that that kind of focus that you came out the other side of it like with a more refined skill set a hundred percent it like taught me you know it taught me how to listen in a studio and then it taught me just like um a lack of preciousness like the phrase uh kill your darlings you know like there may be something you're so like so precious to in the song i love this part so much kill it <laughs> like you know like destroy that thing you love in the song you know like or you know because maybe maybe there's something better there um uh, so just not having no ego about it, you know, and serving the song. Like, I know that's easy to say, but I really do believe that it served the song. What's the best thing for the song here? Is it here? It's not your ego. You know, it's not you being the star of the situation. Like it's making sure it's in tune and in time and that you wrote the best lyrics you could and that the chord structure is solid and that, you know, everyone's strumming in the same way that they should be, you know, like, and, and practicing enough before you actually hit record. And when did you start to feel like um, th- that singing felt good to you? How how young was that? Ah, uh, I still don't feel like singing feels good to me. Um, <laughs> uh, I you know you keep choosing to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. It's like a slightly uh, masochistic thing. Um, <laughs> I I I don't know. You know, like I I struggle with singing a lot. You know, going back to to everything we're talking about with creativity and everything like that i i use cannabis medically you know and i really also like what cannabis does as far as giving you an instant scene change um when you're like okay i'm on the road i did all these things i've got an hour to work creatively um if i smoke a joint i'm instantly in a different mindset and i can be productive and i can work and focus um so but smoking cannabis for me does nothing for my throat it is like i'm battling that the whole time so i'm i've you know had a real like constant tug of war with that for like the last decade of like being like well this is really good for my mental health but this fucks my throat up 
So it's something that I've struggled with um, and still struggle with, you know. Uh, but it's hard with being a punk singer, too, where I know that, you know, for, like, the first X amount of Against Me records, after we'd put out a new one, people would be like, you changed your voice, so it happened. And it was like... You're like, I didn't on purpose. I just don't know how to replicate what <laughs> exactly, I did last time. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. I just didn't know what I was doing, you know? Like, <laughs> so... And, and, like a swarm of bees could have come out. I don't know. Completely. And, you know, like... <laughs> first record we made was made in a day so that's going in there and screaming your head off for 11 songs in a day or as opposed to you know by the third record where you're spending a month in the studio and then that's every day having to go in and work on doing vocal takes and doing that like you just have to use your voice differently and learn how to do it and you know I've I've run like a vocal warm-up app now before shows and I've done that for at least a good nine years now or whatever but I didn't back in the day I didn't do warm-ups I thought that you were supposed to smoke cigarettes and drink whiskey and that was cool you know and that would like give you the gruff voice that you wanted um but I just didn't know what I was doing you know I mean you you know you might not have confidence in the in the voice that's coming out but I'm guessing that there must be some sort of a visceral delight in just the singing because, again, you continue to choose to do it. You know what I mean? Like, do, I'm is stuck there, at this is point. Is there something that feels good? Does it feel good? Like, if you can disconnect from worrying about whether it's sonically pleasing. I, I enjoy, tremendously enjoy singing in a studio. Um, and that's where I feel like I really attach emotionally and can give an emotional performance I feel slightly like conscious all of the time playing live even just in the way of like not wanting my teeth to get kicked in because that's happened to me where like you can see I have like a chip right there because I had to have my front teeth bonded from getting a microphone kicked into my teeth and getting my teeth knocked out, you know? So there's always this, like, keeping in one eye open and being aware of what's around you to make sure you don't get kicked in the face or you don't have a bottle fly and hit you or something like that. Yeah. Um, that's just always there. Who are some of the lyricists in particular that uh, you look up to the most or who you would would hope to, you know, emulate? Sure. Um this, I really love Roland S. Howard's lyrics. Mm. I think that Roland S. Howard is a fantastic lyric writer. Um, we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is also one of those questions where my mind totally goes blank yeah, whenever yeah, I'm enough. asked it. But, uh, I like music. I like songwriters. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, I just, 
I, at, the I, po- at the point when you were first sort of developing your style as a lyricist, who would have been like the biggest heavies for you? Oh, well, shit. Uh, Jim Morrison, unfortunately. When I was like 13 years old, I was really into the doors. <laughs> yeah. So, the, You're like, I need to go to the desert and <laughs> yeah, have a psychedelic. Totally, encounter. totally. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, and I loved Bob Dylan, you know. Um, but I listened to. I listen to a lot. I think it's more about just like taking stuff in and I am very much like input does equal output for me. And and so yeah, so consuming other artists music or new music is that like, you know, I know some artists sort of have the mentality of like they don't want to sort of mess too much with again with the idea of not messing with the not messing with the uh, spiritual magic of the songwriting process I don't listen to too much other artist music it's something that I hear a a lot Um, what what about you or do you consume a lot of new music uh, like by younger artists and stuff like that I do yeah and I I I go to the opposite of that where like I do want to consume new music and I want to listen to it all the time and I feel inspired by it especially when something's really good and I feel like it's better than what I've written because then it's a challenge and it's like oh I gotta my game I really gotta work on this um but there is that danger of like accidentally like co-opting something into your own song but I honestly think at the same time like that's just the way music works you know like and and um I've been obsessed lately with that Song Exploder podcast where artists break down like a particular song. And you know, like you go and listen to any of, or a good majority of those, and they'll talk about the songs they ripped from. You know, like there's the Fleetwood Mac episode where they're talking about um, You Can Go Your Own Way. And like their original drum beat for that song that inspired the song was stolen from a Rolling Stones song. And it's like, right. you hear stuff like that, and you're like, oh, well, I'm not the only one who does that. And that's just kind of the way rock and roll music has always been, you know? That was what used to trip me up when I was younger, though, in a lot of ways, was, like, thinking that, oh, well, I can't write a song that goes G to D to C because someone else already used that chord progression. So it was, like, feeling this obligation to, like, I've got to invent my own chords and invent my own chords, like, chord progressions when that's just impossible. Like, all the chord progressions have been used. You just have to bow down to that and make them unique and make it your own. So that was, like, something that it took me a while to come along around to, you know? I, an, uh, another thing that sort of made me laugh listening, I mean, you know, the best kind of laugh listening, <laughs> listening to your record, um, uh, just, a, you know, hearing a reference and passing to misanthropy and thinking about your, the zine that you had oh, that was called Oh, thank you for picking up on that, yeah. And... <laughs> And uh, obviously, you know, the idea, you know, it's interesting meeting you because only listening to your songs, it's like the idea of you as being a a misanthrope is like, well, yeah, (laughs) she sounds like a hell a misanthrope to me. Maybe a little nihilism in there as well. I don't know if that feels, you know, uh feels like you or not. But but at the same time, like you seem like a very, uh, you know, open kind of uh, positive person. It's like being an uh, extroverted introvert. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm really positive, but really negative. Do you think that you are more or less misanthropic now than you were when you had a fanzine called Misanthrope? That's a good question. I don't know. I, I, I would like to think I'm less, but at the same time, like, at this, you know, having lived a good amount since then and realizing, like, man, people suck, (laughs) you know? Um, And feeling like most social experiences that I live are real letdowns and, like, that 
you know, that I don't know. I don't know if I'm less of a misanthrope <laughs> anymore, you know? And, yeah. and there's like, there's this world operating in this world, you know, and being around, like, I'm happy to be here. I'm playing a show later. That's great, you know? And like, the people at this venue will be nice to me because I'm working here tonight. But if I was just some schmuck coming in off the street, like, they wouldn't be, you know? Like, or they wouldn't be in the same way. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm cognizant of that. Um, and yeah, I kind of take it all with a grain of salt, you know, honestly, like being trans is like an immediate, like, I don't fit in with the rest of the world. I do not like for the most part, transgender people are not welcome in society. You're not welcome to participate in most public spaces. And I've recognized that, you know, and because of that, like, it makes me feel like I don't want to, I don't want to ever be normalized. I don't want to ever fit in because fuck all of you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a completely fair perspective to have, mm-hmm. but I also would hope to say, um, welcome, please, <laughs> please don't hide. I appreciate it. I mean, I, I love it. to hide myself as well, so I get it, but right. uh, I'm glad that we, that we found each other here in Santa Ana yeah, to have this conversation. Sure. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 33 of LSQ. Thanks again to LJG for taking the time to meet with me and uh, for that awesome conversation. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just a one-part episode this time. I don't have an archive clip for you because I've been busy putting out episodes every couple of weeks, and I'll continue with that throughout the fall. Um, but next time, look forward to Stephen Malkmus, my hero. Um, I tried not to geek out too hard. You'll hear how I fared there. Uh, in episode 34, which is due later on this month. Thanks again for listening. You can reach me with feedback, questions, etc. on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. 